0: Thanks, music team, for those truly uplifting songs of praise. This morning, I'm going to be going back eventually to Colossians. It's been a long time since I've been here. And initially, I did do forage into the book by doing an introductory sermon, which really kind of segued from Philemon to Colossians, dealt with a bit of the of the um, historical, geographical details. Uh, But this morning we're going to get into the book proper and with your prayerful support, we'll work through this this book over time and trust that God will encourage this church to grow because of what was taught by the Apostle Paul to the Colossian church. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, please. I will read from verse 1 for connection, although I'll the sermon is going to focus mainly on verses 3 to 14. I know it's a big slice, but I'll explain to you later on how we're going to get to this. <coughs> the title of this morning's sermon is, uh, I know it sounds long and cumbersome, it's not. Uh, the Supremacy and the Centrality of Christ in the Sanctifying Work, There to Be Light, Brother, and There Was No Light. <laughs> in the Sanctifying Work of the Father, thank you for thinking of me nonetheless. And really that title is driven from the theme of this book. The overarching theme of this book is the supremacy and the centrality of Christ. And we already touched on this in the camp, and we're going to feast on that much more. But that drives this entire book. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you, and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we, when we pray for you. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. (coughs) Verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin let us pray father we come to you this morning again as we express our thankfulness to what you have done for us in christ jesus and because of our life in him we have access to your word in a way which those who are in darkness do not and we pray this morning that you may indeed uh, bless us as we open your word and as we endeavor to not only learn from it but to see our lives changed by it we pray for clarity of speech for clear understanding and above all, else for obedient hearts to obey your word and to follow christ and glorify you we pray for this in jesus name and for his sake alone amen this epistle is written to address a heresy in the colossian church now that heresy will be unpacked more in detail when we get to chapter 2 it's it is uh, it is a heresy that uh, paul deals with it's a heresy that he's making his way into the colossian church he's making inroads and so paul writes this epistle um to uh, deal with the heresy as that heresy determines to take them captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. There was a heresy coming in, and we will talk to you about the mix of that later on. Uh, We don't have time for that this morning. But just be aware that Paul is dealing with a heresy, something in this church that, if it's left unchecked, will destroy the church because it challenges the central theme of the church, the supremacy of Christ. And if this heresy can push Christ out of center, the church will fail. Paul challenges this heresy by exhorting the saints to recognize the centrality and the supremacy of Christ in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, which will be for another sermon. The rest of this epistle radiates from this from this section of the book. Uh, this is a short section comparatively, and yet everything in this book from this part we're going to speak about this morning what follows on from uh, chapter 2 onwards radiates from the central theme, like spokes from a wheel. We have to grapple with that quite intensely when we get to chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. The Colossian book has been outlined in many ways, and I'm going to follow an outline which comes out of the text, a very simple outline. Uh, It divides the book, after you exclude the, the opening salutation and the closing greeting, it divides the book into five sections, uh, verses three, verses chapter one three to fourteen, the work of the Father, and we'll show you how that's introduced. Chapter one fifteen to twenty three, the supremacy of the Son. Chapter one twenty four to two verse five, the mission of the apostle. Chapter two verse six to chapter four verse one, the faithfulness of the believers. Chapter four two to four six, a very small section, the mission to the world, and finally it closes in chapter four seven to eighteen with a salutation. And those. Those divisions are literally set up in the book itself, by the way Paul writes. And you will soon see that the way he writes is not without uh, uh, um, but um, direction and not our decision. Um, we will actually see those opening. I'll just take it to you briefly so as we get to the book, you'll see why we're going here. It's important that we know that. You can open your Bibles and follow me with this so it'll help you understand why we've gone through these outlines. And a lot of these outlines will not be a single sermon. It's just impossible. Uh, today I will try and preach a single sermon, but others will not be single sermons. It's just too much to contain therein. But if you look at the, the, at the opening of this, this epistle, this epistle of the Colossians is unique, in a sense, from every other epistle that Paul writes. And here is the uniqueness. Paul, uh, as all the other epistles, introduces himself uh, as a writing here with Timothy. Uh, he then uh, says who it is addressed to, Uh, to the faithful brothers at Christ in Colossae, and then he says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In every other epistle, Paul says grace to you and peace, or some variation, of grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in 1 Thessalonians, which is also unique when it comes to that line of grace and peace, it still in the former verse, keeps God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ linked together on an equal footing in a way which uh, identifies who they are. In there in, in the epistle but in colossians paul does, uh, has as a diversion from his very familiar uh extension of grace and peace he says grace to you and peace from god the father and i believe what paul is doing here is paul's about to spend an, an enormous amount of time expanding on the lord jesus christ and he wants to get there and he's only a reserved place for it, but he wants to start in a way which doesn't give you the impression that jesus christ is supreme to the point that he pushes the father aside, Paul wants to keep the priority of the Godhead very clear. Remember in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, we are told very clearly about God being the head of Christ, and so in this sense, Paul wants to keep that here. And so he says, in verse, uh, in verse two, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And we, we take that phrase, God our Father, the very next verse that he says in verse three is we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul introduces a section on the ...on the work of the father by prefacing it with that unique phrase in verse 1. When you get to the end of, um, of the section on, 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 on his work as a father in verse uh, 13, I'm backing without light. He speaks about uh, being translated or being transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And that very phrase stands just before he gets into a section... That deals with his beloved son in a very significant way. So, Paul kind of sets up almost in the text how he leads, segues, transitions into the next section. At the end of chapter 1, we see Paul says, uh, he speaks about himself, and he says, Of which I, Paul, became a, min- a minister. And then Paul goes into the end of chapter chapter 1. Uh, sorry, I was in chapter 20, uh, verse 23 of chapter 1. And then from verse 24 of chapter 1 to, the, to, the, to, the, to the verse 5 of chapter 2, Paul speaks about his ministry. Uh, as an apostle. Paul finishes two five with this, and he speaks about the firmness of your faith in Christ. And immediately after speaking about the firmness of your faith in Christ, he addresses the church as he looks at the faithfulness of the church in verse uh, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up, and established in the faith. And we see again, Paul is kind of transitioned, into the next uh, division by setting up the text for us. And, of course, the last section uh, really is in verse 4, 2 to 6, 2 to 5, 2 to 6, where he speaks about this mission to the world. And there he doesn't set up a transitional phrase before that, but he does include it in that instruction. And so we see Paul speaks about continuing steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. And so within that section, Paul uh, defines it by this mission to the world, and then he goes into the final uh, greeting. And so we see in the section that Paul, uh, in this book, that Paul sets up a kind of a linear uh, uh, um, um, uh, outline. It may not be the one that you follow. There may be others. There are certainly others. But I just find that having sticking within the text helps us to focus on the text. and I want to really try and do that in preaching through Colossians. <clears throat> it's trying to stay in the text. I will have to refer to some other text to prove a point, but I really want to um, support Colossians from Colossians, so that we stay within the context of this church, and we stay within this particular writing of Paul, and we stay within what is being taught here, rather than trying and bring things hypothetically when we try and figure out. A heresy that is not defined very often in the other epistles especially in Corinthians which we've gone through already we can almost we can define the the heresy by looking at the answers given to the questions here it is not as clear but there are things we will look at to look at that from within Colossians so let's get into the section this morning and trust that I'll get through this in the time left to me we're looking at the sanctifying work of the Father Chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Paul begins to address the church in Colossae by relating to the saints how their faithfulness moves him to pray for them. Paul speaks about the work of the Father, the sanctifying work of the Father, and, he, and, he, and, he, and the backdrop to how he teaches this is to his prayer for this church. His introductory remarks are purposefully intended to encourage, uh, is doing to encourage encouraging. He prays for them in two ways. He prays for them in thanksgiving, verses three to eight, and he prays for them in an intercessory prayer. So his prayer, that is the backdrop to the work of the Father, from verse three to fourteen, has been divided into two uh, common um, structures of prayer: that of that of uh, thanksgiving, and then followed by that of intercession. Thanksgiving, verses 3 to 8. The Thanksgiving section is, is introduced by this clause. We always thank God. We always thank God. That is the main thought in this entire section from verse 3 down to verse 8. We always thank God. Thank God. Everything else in the verses 3 to 8 extends from that central thought. He says we thank the God. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We already showed you how Paul kept the father separate in his, his salutation, but he doesn't want to leave the father delinked, to use a common term, from the son. I think he wants to bring them back together in a way which doesn't minimize the, the, the work of the father, which doesn't upset the priority of, within the Godhead, but will still bring Christ to be linked to the father in such a way that he is obviously not only just God, the son of God, but he is God the son. Because this entire book, is dealing with a heresy that's going to challenge his deity and so paul speaks about uh the prayer which he when he gives thanks to god the father of our lord jesus christ paul is broken from his usual pattern as we said but he brings this back by linking the father uh, the god to the, the, be the father of our lord jesus christ paul magnified christ later as being supreme over and central to both creation and redemption But he also wants to preserve the unique relationship present in the Godhead. He therefore starts his epistle not only by recognizing the priority of God the Father, but he also shows a unique relationship between God the Father and the Son. The deity of Christ is being preserved by Paul in a very uh, unique way. And he says, uh, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, when we pray for you. This thanksgiving is done when Paul prays for them specifically. Paul says when I pray for you, that's when I give thanks. We see from this the consistency of Paul's prayer by his use of the word always. He doesn't pray for him sporadically. His prayer is not haphazard. He's doing it over and over again, the same thing over and over again so that not only that they may benefit from his prayers, which are real, and to a God that answers prayers, but also by doing that regularly uh, 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 Repeatedly, the then keeps him in touch with the church that he has never seen or been with physically it speaks of paul's the stability of in paul's life in his prayer life it speaks of the consistency that we always give thanks when he prays for them the challenge we have in this, in this, this section is which we have also in Paul's epistles we're never sure is he saying we always give thanks or we always praise for them and it's not it's not critical one way or another, but it does help to, to know where Paul is emphasizing this. And sometimes we can see that, and sometimes we can't. And I believe that Paul is giving weight that he, that he always gives thanks when he prays for him. And the reason I'm saying that is later in this book, in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, Paul again returns to thankfulness and the importance of thankfulness. In chapter 3, 16 to 17, Paul says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, indeed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through us. And so Paul has a strong um, emphasis on thankfulness uh, in various places. in And I think that comes out in the way he prays for them. He's always giving thanks for them. You may have a different view. It doesn't change what is being said. It's very much, at the end, it doesn't detract from the book, but I think that it's important that we do see things where they are quite obvious to us. So right away here, there's a bit of an application, right? Uh, We've seen that Paul prays consistently. He prays uh, with uh, with a focus. He prays uh, with them in mind. He prays in a specific way. And so the question is to me, before I put it to you, how much do I emulate Paul in my prayer life? Um, so often, uh, you remember by 12 o'clock, you forgot to say prayers this morning before you left home. You forgot to have time with God's word. And 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 I'm by no means trying to say that um, others do this, and not and not I or some of you. We we, we all it's sometimes are guilt of us. We kind of have priorities that get ahead of our prayer life. Paul prioritizes his prayer life to the point that he prayed for all these churches. I do not know where put the time in. I do not know how he prayed for all of them. And yes, maybe the terms always praying for all of them may be hyperbolic in a certain way, but I do think he was consistent. I think... This woman won't leave me alone. I do think it um, it was focused, and I do think that these people, those people whom he ministered to, these churches... Were, the, were benefited by his prayer life in a way which significantly caused them to walk in a way that honor Christ. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, this is uh, what motivated uh, Paul's uh, 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 thanksgiving. Paul's thanksgiving is not arbitrary, it's not without motivation. He's motivated to offer thanks to God because of two things he heard about them. He heard about their faith in Christ Jesus. They had a Christocentric faith. And he heard of their love for all the saints. And those two things, when it's underpinned by the hope, which we'll look at later on, uh, drove Paul to uh, give thanks for them, their faith. Paul did not minimize the significance of their faith. Their faith motivated him to give thanks to God. And Paul talks about their faith in Christ in more than one place in this epistle i'm going to go to one other place just to help us understand how paul uses and how paul addresses their faith in christ in this epistle you can turn to the even if you want to so you can just see what i'm what i'm referring to colossians chapter 2 verse 1 and for time i'm only going to go right down to verse 5 colossians 2 verse 5 he says for though i'm absent in body we know paul has not been with him paul is not with him at this time paul is writing from the prison he sent his epistle with Tychicus and with Onesimus, we know that already from the past preaching. But Paul says, Though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So we see that phrase both here and in chapter 1 verse 4, their faith in Christ. And Paul repeatedly highlights the reality of the Colossians believers' faith in Christ. It was a real faith. It was a real faith in Christ. It was a faith that affected the way that they lived. In the opening greeting, Paul identifies them as faithful brothers, a term we readily use of ourselves. We pray for each other's faithfulness. We pray that God may keep us faithful. It's a term we, we find uh, coming up repeatedly in our prayers and in our conversation, that we may be faithful, and we usually thank God for our faithfulness, or praying that we may keep us faithful and thank thanking for the faithfulness of others. But Paul draws down a little deeper than just their faithfulness. He focuses on their faith itself the very faith that that gave them the definition of being faithful people. Paul recognizes the essential nature of their faith and why no believer can function without it. We cannot live without faith. Faith is as important to us as oxygen is to our body. Without faith, we cannot function as a believer. Without faith, we cannot serve as a believer. We cannot work, we cannot live within the... But in the the defined world, which we find ourselves a spiritual world, a world that's not a world of darkness but of light, without faith we cannot function. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Without faith, uh, now faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But without faith we will never be able to trust God with confidence in His sovereign work. In that same uh, book, uh, uh, same chapter in verse 6, he says, Without faith... Uh, we cannot please God. To quote it, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You want to to think why people don't believe in God? You want to think why people uh, can't draw near to God in their own efforts? Because without faith, if they don't believe that he exists, they can never draw near to him. And of course, we know that faith not only is uh, what, 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 what fuels our Christian life? It was the very uh, essence of bringing us into this new life in the first place. Ephesians 2 verse 8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. We all know that the faith we have, the faith that we received at regeneration, was a faith that led us to recognize our sinfulness, to repent of our sin, and then, of course, uh, we receive redemption from God through Jesus Christ and be reconciled to him. So faith is an essential component for uh, the life of a believer and in the life of the church. In Colossians, Paul speaks about the faith in Christ in both four and 2.5. And I want to take a moment just to stop here because I want to indicate something to you which we should be careful of when we're reading through the scriptures. And very often we miss something because we do it all as some very privileged men do in the church have access to the original languages. So sometimes we see things and we kind of lock, 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 lock them all together, whereas there's sometimes different nuances that's important to what we know. So let me go and try and explain to you what I'm trying to say about the faith that appears both in four and in 2.5 of Colossians. I'm going to focus on chapter 2, verse 5 first because it's the easy of the two faiths to try and explain to you. And here's what it says. For though I'm absent in body. Yet I'm with you in spirit. Rejoice to see your, your good order. And the firmness of your faith in Christ. <laughs> Paul uses that phrase there. In the same way that most of us use it today. We are very familiar with this phrase. When we talk about things like. Uh, you don't just believe. And you don't have faith. In faith. But there needs to be an, an objectivity to our faith. There's an object. Of faith. The faith is only meaningful and only functions when the faith is directed at an object. And in our case, the object of our faith is Christ. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. That our faith is not focused on human effort. It's not focused on something that is hard to explain. It's not focused on something mystical and mysterious. Um, our faith is not focused in faith itself. Believing in faith itself is meaningless. Uh, this faith is directed at Christ. In our case, we say that our faith is objective, I said. And this is the sense of Colossians 2 verse 5. We have a faith in Christ from the perspective of being, and I'm going to use this term, in. I'm making air quotes because I want you to get a sense when I speak about four. We have a faith from the perspective of being outside of, our Christ, outside of Christ, and our faith is toward Him. He's the object of our faith. Our faith is not directed towards human reasoning. He is the one on whom we focus this, the way this faith is spoken about by Paul, he speaks about again in Thessalonians, using a different word, but putting forth the same principle. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 8, Paul says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God. It's a, it's a different word, a different preposition, but it's the same principle of having faith directly at God. God is the object of your faith and has gone forth. Everywhere. Their faith is Christocentric. Their faith is focused on Christ. Their faith is directed on Christ. And that in chapter 2, we get more to that as we get to that chapter. The way Paul uses faith in 1 4 is more difficult to explain, and I really am going to try and be careful with this. But it is used in the text, so we need to look at it. Uh, I've said this before in other sermons. When we find a dongle in the road, we can't go around it. We need to get through it and try and understand it with whatever we are equipped with to understand. The English translation of these two verses, one and four, makes both of that faith in Christ look the same. And that's unfortunately the limitation of the English language. And there's not going to be a language, uh, English lesson, but I just want to point out to you that sometimes we need something in the scriptures and it looks the same to us. And without the benefit and the luxury of doing deeper, we may just think it means the same thing. But in the original language, the word in is not the same in each case. Whereas in 2.5, Christ is seen as the object of our faith. In one, four Christ is seen as the sphere in which our faith is exercised. Theologically speaking, about 2.5, that's chapter 2, verse 5, places us outside of Christ, 1.4 places us within Christ. And I'm going to try to explain this to you by why I say it's, having our faith in Christ is not believing Christ as an object, but the very faith that we exercise happens within the sphere over which Christ is Lord. We speak about the sphere of influence, we speak very often of uh, people move in the sphere of my influence. What that means is that you've established an environment where when people relate to you, they understand exactly what you are about, they relate to you, you relate to them, and they move it in the sphere. You are the one who defines the sphere of which this particular group would function. We impact people, we relate to them through the sphere of our influence. And in, very, in a very similar way, the faith in 14 functions, 1 verse 4, functions somewhat in the same way, and has effect only within a specific sphere, and that sphere is Christ. And this is important, because it helps us understand why uh, by people who, are not, who do not have focus and do not have faith in Christ objectively can never understand and can never uh, be able to uh, grapple and grasp and benefit from living within Christ because they remain in the domain of darkness, whereas we've been translated into the kingdom of the Son. So I stated differently the faith, this faith is essential for spiritual living, but has no value in the purely natural world. The environment of human experiential faith, and that's how human beings experience faith. When they say "I have faith, they usually speak about an experiential faith, a faith that has been tried and tested. Uh, that mm-hmm. function is a natural world, and it cannot function in the spiritual world. You cannot believe in Jesus Christ, You cannot focus on Him as being the object of your faith. Neither can you believe in Him, have confidence in all that He is with a natural, experiential human faith. The spiritual environment in which the faith is exercised is Christ Himself. This faith that we we have is essential for us to live for Christ. Without this kind of faith, we cannot function effectively. We would not be able to trust those things about salvation that we could not understand. It is this faith this faith that, is, uh, that, that that we have in Christ and being under the sphere of that faith, it is um, uh, this faith that is essential for our living uh, as a Christian. It's this faith that gives us confidence in Him and confidence in what He has done for us. Let me explain this to you again by an analogy of the natural world. People say that, well, I have faith that the chair will keep me up and the only reason they have faith that the chair will keep me up is because they sat in the chair since childhood and it's never fallen down and so they believe that by all intents and purposes all things being equal, that chair will keep them up Uh, and they have total faith they trust in the support of a chair because they have experienced that it works but I tell you, you take somebody out of uh, the middle of a jungle who has never seen a chair in his life and you give him a chair that's got a broken leg and the first time he sits down on it, it falls over, he'll be highly upset. And so he comes back the next day, and you give him a chair again with a broken leg, and he sits down, and he falls over, he'll be highly upset. You give On the third day, you come back, and you give him a chair that's again broken, and he falls over. From that point onwards, he'll have no confidence in the chair, because experientially he knows that that chair cannot be trusted. Well, in a sense by us having faith in Christ as the sphere of our faith, we learn to not only trust Him, but have confidence in all this, and we can only have that kind of confidence in Him when He is the object of our faith, as expressed in five. It's essential that Christ provides a sphere or environment of faith wherein we can freely exercise our objective faith in Him and trust Him in every way, even in those things that we do not fully comprehend with our finite human minds. This is the application of Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Much of this life in which we live, we cannot see, we cannot touch, we cannot grapple with it in a physical way, but we believe it because of faith. It's because an evolutionist doesn't have this kind of faith that he can't believe that Genesis 1 is truthful and real and can have confidence in it. But we do. We weren't there we didn't see God making the heavens and the earth. No one was there. Not even the writer was there. But the writer received this revelation. And by faith, he trusted God and wrote that. And as we read Genesis 1, we have a life that is not only focused on Christ, but lived within the faith provided to us by Christ. That we believe that when the word says it is true, we say amen. Hallelujah. We believe it. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says this. By faith we understand... That the universe was created by the word of god that's how we believe it you don't have to prove it you can't prove it we believe it so what is seen was not made out of things that are visible so not only is paul uh, focusing on their faith as a motivation for giving thanksgiving he also focuses on their love paul gives us as a second reason for his thanksgiving the love that you have for all the saints paul has never met these saints and yet just hearing about their love for each other caused him to give thanks to God. <laughs> this epistle is going to reference love several times. We're not going there this morning. But even in this very uh, chapter, verse 4, verse 8, verse 13, Paul speaks about love. And he references love several on several occasions. Paul is not motivated by their love for him, however. He's motivated by their love for each other. And so often we pray and we give thanks and we kind of... Uh, gravitate to people who show love to us and we are thankful for the good things they do for us and for sharing with us and for supporting us and for encouraging us and sometimes even for just praising us. Uh, We love those things and we kind of gravitate to them. These people didn't extend love to Paul, certainly not in a tangible physical way, yet Paul is motivated to give thanks for them because of their love for each other. And this is critical why the love that we have for each other here It's not just a, uh, um, in a sense, a community thing. It's not just being friends and part of a gathering that we kind of buddy buddy. We are much more than that. We are brothers in Christ. And so the love we have uh, emulates from a life that is driven by faith and should drive us and others to be thankful for the love that we show. And we hope as we show love to each other, not only do we grow in grace in doing that, but others may see that and recognize and realize that Jesus Christ did indeed come from God. So this faith and this love that Paul has as motivators for uh, his thanksgiving is uh, supported upon the hope that's later for them in heaven. These three things, uh, hope, uh, faith, hope, and love, uh, is a common triad in Paul's writings, and in Corinthians and other places a lot more tightly tied together, yeah, it's not quite tied together in that way, but Paul does keep them together by saying that their faith and their love has depth, um, is depth in their faith, their sincerity in their love, and it's driven by a hope that they had that's up that's for them in heaven. Both their faith and love are motivated by their hope laid up in heaven for them. And that, and this hope, which is laid up in heaven for them, has been made known to them in the gospel the word of truth. That's exactly what he says in in verse 5, the last part of that verse, chapter 1, verse 5b, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which brings us immediately to the gospel. And so, after making that first main statement, Paul cascades down with a number of supporting statements, some supporting the first statement, some supporting others, as he builds a case for why he's thankful for them. And then he says, verse 6, this that they have, which they have received from the gospel has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you heard it from Epaphras. Paul reminds him of three things about this gospel that they heard, that they received, and they changed them. Number one, he says the gospel that was heard and understood, that gospel resulted in a response. <coughs> We have to go outside of this epistle to another epistle of Paul just to emphasize the importance of hearing the gospel and respond to the gospel. Many of us still hold um, close to our chest, to our bosom, that maybe someday by living out the gospel, people will see our lovely life and say, I want to be like you. Leave me to Jesus. That is not a biblical framework. Yes, we are called to live like Jesus. Yes, we are called to live in a way that reflects Him. Yes, we are, live, we are called to live in a way that shows evidence that the gospel has been affecting in our lives. But we don't live out the gospel as a means of bringing others to Christ. In fact, we have to preach it. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? Back to their faith. Who are they going to place their faith in? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? Not whom they have never seen emulated, whom they've seen, imitated, whom they've never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Epaphras was sent. Epaphras heard the gospel. Uh, possibly when he was with in, in in Ephesus, Epaphras goes back to his hometown, and Epaphras preaches, and those who heard him preaching responded in faith. How is, and as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so again, the faith is linked to the gospel clearly in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes by yearning and yearning through the word of Christ. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing amongst them as it does also in the whole world. So not only have they responded to the gospel and they take, have taken effect in their life, but the gospel that they are yearning is no different to every other gospel that's preached throughout the world. And yesterday, some of us were able to do just that. We shared this gospel with some of the rest of the world. It wasn't a big rest of the world. Uh, It was a a windy world, and the rest were not always uh, engaging, but we were there. We were preaching the word, sharing the gospel. We had two two fiery sermons from the front, one in English and one in another language. And we heard the gospel preached. But guess what? We are doing exactly what was done to the Colossian church. The way they are saved is the way everybody is saved. There is no other way of being saved but through the preaching of the word. Not by visions, not by dreams, not by looking at lives of people that are good. Only by the preaching of the word. And then, of course, he says this gospel was conveyed to them by Epaphras, a beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ uh, on their behalf. And uh, he talks about Epaphras in the way. In fact, Paul says three things about the Epaphras. He calls him a beloved fellow slave. Now, Paul is in prison at the time. He's not a slave in prison. Epaphras wasn't a slave, to our knowledge. However, Paul sees him sees both him and Epaphras. He calls him a fellow slave, as slaves of Christ. And this is what having faith does. It makes us slaves of Christ. But being a slave of Christ, he was also a faithful servant uh, to them, and he was a faithful witness of the love of Spirit. And so, from this short part of colossians we see that that how we deal with the gospel uh which is a integral part of our life of faith is critical it's a matter of us not only having received it as others have but it's incumbent on us to share it as others have too and so as we were saved by faith through by grace through faith so others will also when they are presented with the gospel but so let's get on to the second part of Paul's prayer. His prayer was first of all a, a, a prayer of thanksgiving, but it's also a prayer of intercession from verses 9 to 14. After telling them that he consistently offers prayers of thanksgiving for them, Paul now adds that he also persistently intercedes on their behalf by asking God specific things for them. Verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking. That, again, uh, brings us to the central thought of this section. Uh, this is a central thought in the middle of this 9, uh, the central thought of the intercessory part of Paul's prayer. We have not ceased to pray for you asking, and the inference is asking God. In fact, some translations put that, asking God. This is the main thought of this prayer. Uh, the content of this prayer, what is he praying, is this, that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Just a just a, a, a side a sidebar, which came to me this morning as Jonathan was teaching. This epistle is written about five years after Corinthians. There was obviously still gifts of knowledge evident in the church. I'm not told, but if was only five years later, the canon hasn't been closed, there's still a growing church. And yet Paul says he prays they may be full with knowledge and wisdom and understanding. So, therefore, this knowledge, this, this, this gift of knowledge this morning, doesn't come to everybody. It's a specific gift given to specific people to use used in a specific way for a specific time. But what Paul prays here is the question that Victor asked How do we still have knowledge? Well, we still have continual knowledge, specifically of his will. And this knowledge we then um, see also in spiritual wisdom and understanding. How should we understand what the knowledge of God's will is? And perhaps in Hadalpas we see that this is not referring to what, but to who. This knowledge of God is resident not in what, but in whom. Colossians chapter 2 verse 1. I'll read this to you for, 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 for time's sake. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Remember the two letters that were sent out. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Listen to the words that Paul uses again here in, 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 in the chapter 2 of Colossians. <laughs> United together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. What is God's mystery? Which is Christ. In whom are all hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seat at the right hand of God. Set your minds. That is the seat of our knowledge. Set your minds, our redeemed minds, are able to now uh, engage with this kind of knowledge. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is the content uh, of Paul's prayer, that may be full of knowledge and all spiritual wisdom and all understanding. The purpose of being full of knowledge is this, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. We all want knowledge. We all want to be able to recite and quote the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We all want access to verses that we can use as weapons to put others down because knowledge of that nature only puffs us up. But the knowledge that Paul is speaking about here, the knowledge which needs to be an outcome... Or rather, that knowledge should have a specific outcome, which is not that you just share that knowledge, but that it affects the way you walk. That knowledge defines our walk. As you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Paul's purpose in praying for this knowledge, for this wisdom, for this understanding, is that they may have a Christocentric walk. There's a walk in a way that reflects the life that they have received in Christ. This is important in chapter 2 verse 6, where Paul says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in, your, in, the, in the faith, in the faith, the body of doctrine that defines what we what we believe. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The question is, what does this walk look like? Uh, what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, and very quickly? Paul breaks this down for us in case we lose sight of what he's trying to teach. He says, (coughs) Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That that verse uh, looks back uh, to verse 6, which speaks about the effect of the gospel on the Colossian saints and draws in verse 9, which calls the readers to be full with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And the simplest way to understand this phrase of bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing the knowledge of God, is by recognizing that unless we grow in understanding of God's will, as it is embodied in Christ, we will never be able to bear fruit that's pleasing to Him. We cannot please God in our own strength. We cannot please God in ways that we devise for ourselves. We cannot imagine what God wants. Very often we say, what is the will of God? If only I knew the will of God. This is the will of God. That we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord pleasing to him and one of that is that we bear fruit the gospel results in a changed life the gospel results in a life of faith and that faith when it works through us in the way that god intends you to do will yield fruit and that fruit will be pleasing god this good work not only includes the love of the saints in verse 4 but also witnessing to those outside the church also he says in verse 11 being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. This is what it looks like. Rather than being overwhelmed by the reticulable, plausible arguments they were, being, they were facing, they should rely and stand uh, solely in God. And so often, this is how we fail. We are overwhelmed by what is thrown to, to us from the world, and we cave in. We fail to engage. We walk away. We take the easier of it out. Uh, Paul says you are going to be faced with a heresy or you are being faced with a heresy that is devastating to you as a church and that is blasphemous to christ and he says you need to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might we need to stand be able to stand and withstand and we can only do that if we are living a life that is lived within the sphere of the faith that christ provides for us to that he adds for all endurance and patience this phrase points to the purpose of being strengthened. Why should it be strengthened? For endurance and patience, that they may endure. Some, another version puts it like this, to endure with patience. Another version says to persevere and endure. And we are living in days when this is going to become a, a reality in our lives. When persevering and enduring is going to be more than just um, something we think should typify our lives. It's going to become a reality. We've seen that already. We were called to endure. We were called to endure under COVID, right? To gather this way in the face of all wisdom of the world that says, you guys are crazy. You're all going to die. In the face of all that claim that we were breaking the authority of the, of, of the country and we should rather obey them and disobey God. We endured. We stuck it out. We did it patiently. We didn't do it with fighting. We didn't do it with protests. We didn't go out there saying, well, this is the only way. We simply quietly, faithfully endured. And that endurance with patience is indeed. Uh, why we need to be strengthened with power. And finally, he says in verse 12, end of verse 11 and 12, with joy giving thanks to the Father. In the midst of withstanding heresies, in the midst of perseverance and endurance, Paul calls the Colossians believers to worship. That's amazing. He says endure patiently, face face what comes your way, uh, be strengthened with power, and all of that speaks out to us of being kind of uh, putting up a guard and fighting. Uh, but he says, to all of this, with joy, giving thanks to the Father. So he comes full circle. He started with his thanksgiving that um, was uh, motivated by their faith and love. He brings them and tells them now to be thankful, to express thankfulness with joy. In the midst of withstanding heresies, in the midst of uh, pers- uh, perseverance and endurance, Paul calls the Colossian believers to worship. This is the implication of giving thanks with joy. We heard that so often from James, right? It's been drummed into our ears, drummed into our heads. We hear people saying it at home. We have children saying it at home with joy, with joy. And it is this exact same principle that Paul makes the center of being thankful for the, for the, for the life we have in Christ. Now, as you look at these aspects of the walk of the saints, we're reminded that this walk is only possible. If we experience the sanctifying work of the Father in our lives, again to the answer of Colossians, <laughs> let me quote to you from Philippians, uh, from sorry, from Thessalonians, one Thessalonians four verse thirteen. He says this: Finally then, brothers, Paul says to the to the Thessalonian church, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know that what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And through this entire section that we've just gone through now, we see how God sanctifies them through the way He, he, he causes them to walk, causes them to endure, causes them to, 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 to uh, uh, gain knowledge and wisdom and understanding. All of those things are sanctifying aspects of our life, but it comes from God, God the Father. Without Him giving that to us, we will not be able to walk. We will have no knowledge. Understanding will be only human understanding. And so we have this wonderful uh, uh, full circle where Paul says, I'm giving thanks. I am in, um, making intercessory prayer that you too may give thanks in all of these things. Verse 12, end of it. The Father has qualified you to share in the heritage of the saints in life. Four rounds of the section and prepares us to move to the next by reminding them of the tremendous work the Father has done. Not only for them, but also in them. They've not only been saved through the gospel, but they've been completely changed by the gospel. And that's why when we preach about the gospel, it's not only to preach to those who are not saved. It's to be a means of us growing in knowledge, in wisdom, and understanding. It's a means for us to understand more about the one in whom we have placed our faith as we learn by the gospel how to live in the sphere of his faith so that we can live a life that's glorifying to God with which he is pleased. They are now able to live in a, in a different dimension, in one of light. They're now subject to a new king, his beloved son. And so as Paul ends, all, ends the emphasis of the father's work in this section, he prepares his readers and he prepares us to transition to the next section by stating in verse 13, for he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, a domain that is dominated by Satan and the domain in which we have all been born. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And on that note of uh, redemption, forgiveness, again, ringing uh, out the phrase of the gospel, of evangelism, he transitions us into that tremendous section, uh, verse, verse 15 to verse 23, a hymn about the glorious preeminence of Christ, as he is seen as a central person to all of God's work, in both creation and redemption, which in part will be our subject for our next sermon. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for causing churches like the Colossian church to be taught in a way that you have so that we have on record truths that guide us and cause us to understand more and more the life we have been called. We pray, Lord, that you may give us uh, a desire to live a life that you, it pleases you, that we live a life that honors Christ, that we live a life that reflects, that we live by faith and live within faith so that Christ may be glorified. We can all be saved. We pray for this in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen.